Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we have a really fun show for you today. I am thrilled to introduce my good friend, colleague, and recent graduate from her cardiac anesthesia fellowship program, Dr. Stephanie Cha, who is now an assistant professor of anesthesiology here at Johns Hopkins and will be doing cardiac anesthesia and will continue to do critical care as well. We were actually co-fellows together in our SICU fellowship, and it's really a pleasure to have her here. And she actually is going to take the mic and introduce a really fun and exciting guest who she has brought in, and then she's going to take him through some interesting discussions of blood management and cardiac surgery. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Cha. However, just before I do, I do want to point out that this episode is going to be featured at anesthesiologynews.com. So check it out. You can find various ACRAC episodes over there, as well as a lot of other great content. So check it out, anesthesiologynews.com. All right, and now I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Stephanie Cha. Thanks so much, Jed. This is really fun for me because, you know, Jed and I used to spend a lot of time on call together and during our ICU fellowship saying a bunch of really silly things, and now we get to say it in front of everybody. So <laughs> this is a good opportunity for a lot of reasons. Um, so just a little bit about me. I, uh, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist and a cardiac surgical intensivist, so that means I take care of people who come to the operating room for cardiac surgery and then continue taking care of them afterward during their post-operative phase of care. And I am very interested in how we make our decisions regarding transfusions and blood medicine. Um, For example, what do we give, how much, to whom, and when? And as part of my quest to learn more, I started over the past year putting together some materials about blood medicine um, and cardiac surgery patients. And part of that process um, involved coming up with the creation of this uh, podcast mini-series, so to speak. So just to give a little background information for everybody, you know, you may not know, but every year uh, we give a lot of blood. We give like 15 million units of red cells, and a lot of those go to cardiac surgery patients, so almost 10 to 15 percent of all red cells go to these guys. And um, that actually means that almost half of all people who come for cardiac surgery end up getting a transfusion of some kind. And there are many, many reasons that we can talk about in a whole other episode why people bleed during cardiac surgery. That's actually very interesting. Um, But, you know, the consequence is that bleeding and anemia that results from it can have very real consequences and bad outcomes. You know, but on the other hand, transfusions can have consequences too. And so, you know, many of you are familiar, a lot of the debate has kind of centered around uh, these restrictive versus liberal transfusion practices. Um, but on the extreme end, we also have this really fascinating population of people who cannot receive blood transfusions for religious reasons. And I thought this would make a really good topic, so I'm really excited actually to introduce Dr. Steve Frank, who is a professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine here. Um, you know, Dr. Frank specializes in vascular transplant, especially liver transplant and thoracic anesthesiology. And he is the director of our Bloodless Medicine Program. And you guys might not know what that is. So I want to first say hi to Dr. Frank um, and ask him to maybe start by telling us a little bit about what is the Bloodless Medicine Program and how did it initially come about? Sure. I'm privileged to be here, uh, Stephanie. So thank you for inviting me. <clears throat> so we, we actually run two programs here at Johns Hopkins Hospital. There's the blood management program, which is designed to reduce unnecessary transfusions for those who accept blood. And then there's the bloodless program designed to avoid transfusions completely for patients who don't agree to accept transfusions. Okay. And we actually use the same methods of blood conservation for both patient populations. Only one is to reduce blood use and the other is to avoid blood use. Gotcha. So um, how, how did it come about to have the idea for this program in the, in, in the first place? Did we start seeing uh, increasing numbers of, you know, especially Jehovah's Witness population patients coming in? Or was this something you carried from another like an idea from another program, or how, how did this come to be? Right. Um, <clears throat> so it turns out uh, there's about 1.2 million Jehovah's Witness mm-hmm. uh, people in the United States population. Uh, so what is that, like one in 300 
uh, people in the U.S. as Jehovah's Witness. But at our particular institution, uh, about 1% uh, of all of our patients admitted to Hopkins uh, claim to be Jehovah's Witness. So that's about 500 patients a year out Mm -hmm. of 50,000 admissions. Yeah. So that's more than one patient per day. Yeah. Uh, and when they come in for, say, a thyroid surgery or a prostate surgery nowadays, it's not that big a deal, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the blood loss on a thyroidectomy is about two tablespoons. Right. Okay. Uh, but when they come in for uh, something like a Whipple or a, or a cardiac surgery, whether it be a cabbage or valve or, or something uh, with the ascending aorta, those are big deal cases, and we get all excited about, <laughs> about how we manage them because, like you said, half of them require transfusions. Right. So that's a whole different yeah, exactly. uh, scenario than a thyroidectomy. Yeah, it's super challenging. I can remember a couple cases that you brought to us for that reason. Um, you know, maybe to back up a little bit so everyone's kind of on the same page, what is your understanding of the foundation for why... Jehovah's Witnesses refuse blood products, and what does that mean for what we're able to offer? Funny you should ask, because I spent all morning writing a book chapter okay. on this. Uh, <laughs> it so wasn't a primed question. <laughs> since 1945, uh, according to the doctrine of their Watchtower organization, um, it was deemed unacceptable uh, that they accept uh, what they call the major fractions of blood which is red cells, plasma, and platelets, mm-hmm. all, all the things we like to give. Yep, exactly. Okay. Uh, however, everything else, like albumin and cryoprecipitate, immune globulins, clotting factors, those are considered a personal decision but acceptable by the church. Right. So, so, so the, re- the way it came about, okay, to finish the answer, right. is uh, there are four places in the Bible— uh, in both the New and the Old Testament, where uh, it essentially says, Thou shalt not consume the blood of another mm-hmm. living creature mm-hmm. or, or you know, your own creature. Thou shalt not consume blood. And they take that to mean a transfusion. Uh, interesting, though, uh, in the Jewish religion, mm-hmm. they, uh, do you know they drain the blood out of the animal before it is slaughtered? I didn't know to, that. To make it kosher. <laughs> so that comes from the same passages in the Bible, only oh, different, different, different interpretation. interpretation. That's yeah. so interesting. So then, you know, the few Jehovah's Witnesses patients that I have taken care of, I found that there's a great variability in what fractionates they will accept. And so what do you think accounts for that? Are they just interpreting what consumption of blood Means or is there some other system that guides them in, in terms of what which people can accept which products? So this is what frustrates physicians the most, <laughs> because if if they could only understand what's on limits and off limits, mm-hmm. then it would be nice and easy, right? Right. right. Uh, so the bottom line is that in in their teachings, okay, that that the major fractions of blood mm-hmm. are unacceptable. That's red cells, plasma, right. and platelets. Right. Uh, by the way, they also include whole blood, which we don't see much of, right? Uh, and white blood cells, which we hardly ever give. They are available right. through the Red Cross, but we don't mm-hmm. give them. Uh, so everything else they consider a minor fraction of blood. Mm-hmm. So albumin, for example, um, that we obtain from plasma donors, okay? Right. Uh, that's a personal decision and and so they need to make that on their own the same with um, cryoprecipitate and, and a lot of physicians can't figure out why that's any different from plasma right but in their literature cryoprecipitate is a minor fraction i see how they can discriminate that from plasma yes product. and right. that's where we get most confused because it's right. yellow and it looks like plasma yeah <laughs> Yeah, they consider it a minor fraction. And I'll tell you now that about 90%, sometimes higher, of our Jehovah's Witness patients will accept all these minor fractions, Mm -hmm. about 90%. Right, so including albumin, factor concentrates, cryo. And often it explains who, often it depends on 
who's explaining it to them. Mm-hmm. Okay, because there there are many Jehovah's Witnesses that don't even know the difference between major and minor fractions. Right. I and can imagine many, there are many physicians who don't always know the difference. Doctors too. don't know right. the difference. Yeah. So so it really helps to have a coordinator who can speak the language of the Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. And and so they come in two flavors. Okay. There's these HLC representatives, which are like elders in the church. Mm-hmm. It stands for Hospital Liaison Committee. Okay. Okay. And they'll go help patients navigate the healthcare system. Okay. And so an elder might be at the bedside to help them make these decisions. But in our program, as in other bloodless programs uh, that are established, we have a clinical coordinator like Andy Pippa, who you've probably met, Mm -hmm. who is an elder himself in, in the congregation, and he works here for us. And he can explain these carefully to both the patients and the doctors. I see. And so then it is up to the individual to make a personal decision from what they understand about how this non-major component has been synthesized from what it comes from in process, whether or not they're willing to receive it as part of their Exactly. Therapy. And and therefore, uh, when we um, complete the consent, mm-hmm. which we call the blood refusal consent, right. Uh, if you have someone that can mediate these decisions, like a coordinator right. or an HLC person, then the consent process goes much more smoothly. I see. Have you ever had a situation in which you were consulting or evaluating a patient for a major surgery, like cardiac surgery, but felt that their risk profile was too high, that even with the products they were willing to receive, that you know the best decision was probably not to go ahead and pursue surgery. Right. Uh, I think some of the best decisions in medicine Mm -hmm. are to decide when treatment is not wise or or, uh, even ethical. So some of the best doctors I've seen, most experienced doctors, they know when not to operate. Um, And so, for example, if patients are severely anemic Mm -hmm. pre-op, uh, for example, we had a patient with severe endocarditis and had abscesses in his cardiac valves. In the, right. Mm-hmm. Not just endocarditis, but like right. abscess in the mm-hmm. in the myocardium. Yeah. And he had a hemoglobin of 6.5 and super sick, febrile, septic. Right. You know, that that's the kind of patient that you, you're just not going to operate on. You're going to do conservative treatments, antibiotics, or maybe even hospice for mm-hmm. some of these patients. It's going to be better than taking them to the OR because, you know, he's going to end up with a hemoglobin of three right. after the surgery. And, and so preoponemia is, is something we should talk about because that's often the hurdle that we have to jump right. to get these patients safely to the OR. Yeah. And of course the the size of the surgical procedure. Right. Yeah, so why don't we do that? So why don't we talk a little bit, you know, when someone comes through surgeries, we usually think of the three phases. There's what we can do to optimize them preoperatively and then what we what interventions we can do intraoperatively and post op. So maybe you can kind of take us through when you're advising someone about what their narrative will look like. What are the interventions at each stages that we can prepare them for. So um, in cardiac surgery, when blood is not an option, uh, there's really one of the major issues of importance is is the target hemoglobin uh, before they come to the OR. Uh, And so depending on the anticipated blood loss, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, is it a revision Right. CAB valve, or is it just a simple first-time CAB? Mm-hmm. Uh, so the we look at the expected blood loss. Okay. We also look at the patient's body mass. Uh, we all know that small 40-kilogram women, for example, have about half the blood volume right. as an 80-kilo man. Right. Uh, so they can afford half of the blood loss. Right. <laughs> before they reach a critical uh, level of anemia. So we look at expected blood loss, body mass, 
And then sometimes we even look at, at who the surgeon is and how much experience they have. <laughs> and, and then we pick a target hemoglobin. Yeah. For the average 80 kilo yeah. adult having the average CAB, yeah. we're usually happy with the hemoglobin above 12. Okay, as a preoperative goal hemoglobin. Preoperative gotcha. goal okay. hemoglobin. But if it's a 40 kilo woman, mm-hmm. which we've had, right. for an ascending aortic right. repair... I remember this okay. yeah. with with an incompetent valve and a dilated root, uh, then we often target a hemoglobin as high as 15 oh, or, or 16. So you're thinking about what their blood reserve needs to be going into surgery, estimating the complexity of the case and how much bleeding to expect. Okay. Exactly. So, so a different person's hemoglobin threshold or goal will be different preoperatively depending on... And, and sometimes factors. we ask the surgeon what their target hemoglobin would ideally be because mm-hmm. if they have enough experience, they'll know, you know, this is a huge case in a small person. Right. And, and my average hemoglobin drop is, say, 4 grams per deciliter. Right. So if you start at 12, you're going to be at 8. Gotcha. Okay. So, so the surgeons should have some input there, too. So in terms of increasing their blood reserve, as we mentioned, especially for these small 40-kilo ladies, um, what sort of things can we do preoperatively, and how much time does that sure. take? Oh, yeah. two good questions. So in general, uh, you want about four weeks to, to treat mild to moderate anemia. Mm-hmm. And we usually, if you want to be aggressive, and you have, say, you want to get from 10 to 13. Right. In, in four weeks, we usually do intravenous iron plus erythropoietin. Okay. Okay. Uh, and we do this even for patients who aren't iron deficient. Uh, so they might have a normal ferritin level, mm-hmm. uh, meaning they're not iron deficient. But when you give them uh, erythropoietin, they can have what we call functional iron deficiency. In okay, other words, because they're, they're making demand so many for replication of blood cells is so exactly. high. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. They're making so many extra red cells that mm-hmm. they they deplete their own iron stores. So if you give iron and EPO together, and uh, and we do it usually a high dose of each right. once a week mm-hmm. for four weeks, then you you can increase someone's hemoglobin about one gram per week. Okay. Have you ever needed to do longer durations of therapy, you know, in the cases that we've discussed? And is there kind of like a cap on how much you can try to augment their blood cell production? So we, we've had two different scenarios. One is, is where a case gets canceled for some odd reason. Mm-hmm. And then you have to bring them back for a second round I see. of treatment yeah. because mm-hmm. sometimes they drift back down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've also had the 40 kilo with the ascending a- aortic aneurysm, uh, the small woman, uh, where we targeted 15 or 16. And yeah. she had to come for six weeks of treatment uh, with iron and EPO. Right. And we actually got her up to close to 16 grams of hemoglobin. And at the same time, there's, a, there's an FDA black box warning right. on erythropoietin. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And it cautions you against giving EPO with a hemoglobin above 11, okay? And this came out of the patients in renal failure who get a lot of EPO with dialysis. Mm -hmm. And they were seeing some thrombotic events uh, when the hemoglobin gets too high. So it's a risk-benefit decision that we make. And uh, I think if they're ambulatory and Mm -hmm. active... Uh, then the the benefits... And their thrombus risk is low. The Got benefits it. exceed the risk. Okay. What about for the patients who are in hospital? You know, they've been transferred here. They're not necessarily emergent surgeries, but they're not exactly elective. And you don't have as long of a period to bump their hemoglobin or, or raise their reserve prior. What can we do for those people? Sure. Like, we've had patients transferred here from outside community hospitals. Mm-hmm even with cardiac surgery programs. Right, yeah. Who are, say, uncomfortable uh, with the, with the uh, declining of blood mm-hmm. uh, consent. And, and so they come in and we give them usually daily intravenous 
ion okay. sucrose infusions, and then sometimes 40,000 units of uh, intravenous erythropoietin mm-hmm. uh, daily. Okay. And, and we can aggressively treat their uh, hemoglobin level to try to get them up to near 12. Okay, so in a matter of a few days to raise their hemoglobin by um, points? I would say the most we've seen is maybe 2 grams in a week. Okay, got it. I, I wouldn't... Those patients are tricky. Sometimes we, we, if they have unstable angina, we can't wait, so we have to weigh the risks and benefits. Right. Um, you know, a question I have, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit in intraoperative cell salvage type techniques. Um, is autologous donation on the, is that up for grabs for any of these patients, or is that sort of universally rejected preoperatively? So, good question. So, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, everybody wanted to bank their own blood, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so, we had all these patients, like for prostate surgery, that would come in and they, they want to pre-donate their blood. Right. And in fact, uh, it wasn't until about 10 years ago that we recognized that this doesn't even work. It doesn't even help, okay? Because you're just basically making the patient anemic before their surgery without mm-hmm. time to recover. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Because they were giving blood, say, three to four weeks ahead mm-hmm. of time so it wouldn't expire. The shelf life is six weeks. Yeah. And they don't have time to replete their iron stores and to I make see, right? to make new red cells. Yeah. Plus their stored blood is now old. It's been <laughs> sitting in the blood bank. So right. those cells aren't quite as good. Exactly. But however, to answer your question, Jehovah's Witnesses won't allow this. Okay. They they don't want their blood separated from their body. So even if it was an option, even if it did work, uh, they would not agree to pre op autologous donation. Gotcha. So, you know, intraoperatively, you know, things can be very unpredictable. Uh, you know, I think this is probably where the majority of patients receive their transfusions. What sort of things can we do when we're thinking about the available yeah. products available to each patient when we're deciding on our method of resuscitation? And what are the blood sparing and saving yeah. techniques also? You know, I think something special to um, cardiac surgery is the addition of blood volume to the patient through the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. So here's a situation where your blood is now circulating extra corporally, so outside of your body. How do Jehovah's Witnesses feel about that? So there's a lot of issues and variables that can be uh, controlled during a cardiac surgery that make a big difference. Mm-hmm. Okay? Uh, I like to say the main goal uh, of bloodless medicine and surgery is keeping the blood in the patient. Yeah. Okay. I, I know that sounds obvious and it sounds kind of funny, but it's it's the number one most important thing is to keep the blood in the patient. So we have what we call meticulous surgical technique. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that sounds kind of funny too because you would think we would do that for we everyone. We would do it for everybody. Yeah. However, okay, whatever the average blood loss on the average surgery would be, when you bring in a Jehovah's Witness, it usually drops in half, okay? Because the surgeons do something different, whether maybe they don't let the interns sew the, the graft, or mm-hmm. or maybe they have the attending do the, uh, the critical parts of the procedure. Right. Or I've even seen them bring two attendings in the room, uh, mm-hmm. two attending surgeons right. to help each other if it's a big case and high risk. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two is notify the perfusionists. Okay, they can do what I call perfusion magic. Okay, <laughs> maybe you can tell us some of the magic. <laughs> so, actually, I think it's my belief that we don't know everything they do. Uh-huh. Okay, we know some of what they do. Uh, for example. Uh, using smaller diameter tubing Mm -hmm. for the circuits can uh, cause less hemodilution when they go on pump. Uh, So up up until a certain body mass, they can can reduce the circuit diameter and the length of the tubing as well. Uh, Also, they um, can do what we call retrograde autologous prime. I'm sure you've heard of that. They call it RAP. Yeah, wrapping. 
Yeah. Uh, I guess if anyone who doesn't know what that is, it's, um, you know, the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit can store anywhere between, I think, like 800 to 2 liters of volume. And um, how you fill that volume and, you know, eliminate air from it can be done a number of ways. You can fill it with crystalloid solution, albumin, blood products, or you can do what we say, wrapping. You can prime it with the patient's own blood. So you allow retrograde return of blood to fill in the cannula and in the tubing and um, that is what then primes the tube and circulates. Yeah. So if they do that, they have to actually force out some of the uh, saline. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they even prime with albumin, for example, to mm-hmm. increase the intravascular volume. Mm-hmm. Um, and they basically prime the circuit with the patient's own blood. You might need some pressors, too, right. because you're taking blood off the patient to prime the circuit. Right. Uh, so it's a balancing act. Um, the other thing the perfusionists do, they have two tools up their sleeve. Mm-hmm. One, we know about the cell saver, yeah. uh, which is uh, they collect the shed blood, run it through the centrifuge washer process, which, by the way, eliminates all your clotting factors and all mm-hmm. your platelets. Right. Okay. So here we have just pure red blood cells coming back. You yeah. end up with just red cells and saline. Uh, which is good and bad, mm-hmm. uh, respectively. Uh, and now they use something called uh, hemoconcentrators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it has other names uh, called ultrafiltration. Right. Uh, or um, they call it modified ultrafiltration. Right. Basically, it's it's kind of like uh, CVBHD, where they pull water off of the whole blood that's left in the pump at the end of the bypass run. Yep. So they dehydrate the whole blood and concentrate it. Right. And then what they give you back is is whole blood concentrated with the clotting factors and the platelets. And the heparin. And the only drawback is it's still heparinized because it's coming from the pump. Yeah. But the alternative is to waste it in the pump reservoir when you're done with the bypass run. Right. And so we think that by giving the right dose of protamine, for example, mm-hmm. you might know better than me yeah. <laughs> whether that actually works and we can reverse the residual heparin mm-hmm. and, and give the patient back whole blood rather than cell saver blood. Right. Yeah. Um, that's like a really good discrimination between the two sources of blood that patients receive that is their own blood back at the end of cardiac surgery. For people who you know, may not be familiar, we have what is processed from the pump reservoir, which is essentially whole blood that contains some amount of heparin that we try to reverse when it's returned into the body, and cell salvage or cell saver, which is washed red blood cells, but deplete of clotting factor and platelets. Um, and so is there any difference in how we Readminister. So I would assume that pump blood or, um, you know, ultrafiltrated blood is in line within the cardiopulmonary bypass circuit. So it may not be distinguished from the rest of the machine. But cell salvage is actually collected independently through different cell saver suckers that come um, to be washed. So is there anything different about that process that has to be done to stay, quote-unquote, in line for these, for these patients? So um, historically... Jehovah's Witness patients wanted the blood to be continuous with their circulation. Right. So they've asked, for example, <clears throat> that the cell saver be hooked up to their IVs. Uh, okay. Because that right. way it's in continuity with their circulation. I see. And so if you ask the perfusionist to do that, they'll throw you a line right, right. primed with saline that makes it uh, continuous with the patient's circulation. I see. Okay. Uh, although in their literature it says it's uh, it's acceptable for a temporary disconnect. Okay. So meaning and the blood know, that is temporarily spun down and handed over to an anesthesiologist yeah. in a bag that for some folks that's okay. In their own literature it says right. that, that temporary disconnection is mm-hmm. okay. Although I might know that, but the Jehovah's Witness on the street might not know that. Right, right. Because they don't That's read their so literature yeah. as well as <laughs> as we do sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but there's one more thing that we haven't discussed, and that's uh, acute normal volemic mm-hmm. hemodilution. When you talk about intraoperative blood sparing techniques, yeah. So uh, 
we've all heard of it, uh, ANH, we call it sometimes. And that's where the patient pre-banks their own blood, uh, right there in the operating room. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually between induction of anesthesia right. and when the bleeding begins. Yes. Okay, you've usually got an hour of time in there mm-hmm. to uh, phlebotomize blood off the patient, uh, store that blood in citrated bags mm-hmm. that we have available, uh, and that, it, that way you have whole blood ready to go uh, that we usually give back to the patient after the bypass run is finished. Right. Now, the, the caveat is they got to have a high enough hemoglobin to start with yep. so you don't dilute them uh, too low during bypass. And then, of course, the, the benefits aren't going to be achieved if you don't remove enough blood. Right. Because the idea is you want them to bleed at a very low hematocrit mm-hmm. and then give them back their blood after the bleeding stops. Right. And that would be blood that hasn't been exposed to the bypass circuit and undergone the changes that supposedly happen during that medical so, time. Yeah. Exactly. So this blood hasn't been run through the cell saver. Right. So it, it's truly whole blood. Uh, it hasn't been exposed to the circuit or the pump or the tubing which uh, there's good evidence that that at least temporarily right. uh, disarms platelets so they don't work well right. for about 12 to 24 hours. Right. So we're, we're talking about this whole blood, and I've done this a few times, um, you know, not just Jehovah's Witness patients, and just as Dr. Frank says, you know, when assessing someone's preoperative hemoglobin and deciding that they'll be able to tolerate the anemia that occurs after dilution by their um, bypass prime volume, what we usually do is, through gravity drainage from a large bore central venous catheter, remove um, you know anywhere from probably like 300 to 600 or more uh, cc's of whole blood um, in citrated bags. And I guess the question really is, in usual practice, you would then disconnect this bag from the patient and you would store it somewhere um, for reuse after separating from cardiopulmonary bypass. How is this blood stored in these patients? You had mentioned that they're okay with temporary disconnect. Does that kind of fall in the purview of that temporary disconnection? So we, we do this in non-cardiac surgery, for mm-hmm. example, for Whipple patients right. for pancreatic cancer because we don't like to use the cell saver mm-hmm. on cancer surgery. Yeah. So sometimes ANH is the best method that we have. Uh, so we do this quite often. And what we do is we hang the, the phlebotomized blood on the, on the IV pole and we hook up a blood tubing, uh, regular blood tubing, mm-hmm. uh, from the blood bag to the patient's IV. Okay, so you keep it in continuity in the same way and that it, you would the. And right. it's connected, and uh, and everybody's happy. <laughs> and then when the bleeding stops, we can administer this whole blood. Right. And by the way, the more you take off, the more effective it's going to be. Right. I think if you just take off one unit. <laughs> like 10% of a patient's blood volume yeah. and then give it back at the end of the case, you might be making yourself feel good, but I don't think you're having much impact mm-hmm. on uh, coagulation or even red cells. Right, right. If you only take off one unit. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you wanted to mention before kind of talking about the postoperative phase and what we can do to minimize blood loss then? Uh, two more things yeah. on the intraoperative phase in that come to mind is, is complete rewarming mm-hmm. is important. Uh, we all know that, that if you don't completely rewarm, uh, patients will drift back down because you have to warm their whole body, not just their blood. Right. Right. So that's why we measure two temperatures yeah. during rewarming, uh, the central temperature, which is blood or mm-hmm. core, and then a peripheral temperature. Right. like bladder or rectum. Mm-hmm. So you want to do a slow, steady rewarming to get the whole body warm so they don't drift back down. There's good evidence, really good evidence, you bleed more below 35.0 degrees. Mm-hmm. And there's some evidence as well uh, that you bleed even at 36.0 degrees. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you can be more at risk. So that's important. And then... Um, these other factors may be helpful, like cryoprecipitate. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and most uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, if they do accept minor blood fractions, they'll accept PCCs. Yeah. Prothrombin complex concentrate. Yeah. So these are the factor seven dependent um, clotting factors, usually two, seven, nine, ten, or some combination. Yeah. The vitamin K three factor or four factor, correct? We right. we now have FDA approved the four factor PCC, which is like you said, two, seven, nine, and ten. Right. Uh, and with that and cryo and and other things like uh, DDAVP, for mm-hmm. example, if you think they they have dysfunctional platelets, uh, that's an easy drug to give. And you got to remember all those tricks up or, up your sleeve as well. Right. Um, okay, so maybe you could walk us through, you know, the patient that has arrived to the ICU. And one of the first things I always see the ICU nurses do is they huddle around the patient and right away they begin drawing off their admission labs. And I know we've done a lot of work, especially in Jehovah's Witness patients, to minimize how much blood is removed and how often. Sure. Um, so um, we all know that patients in the ICU especially are at risk for high blood loss from phlebotomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, we took a survey in the five adult ICUs at Johns Hopkins Hospital, right. and the average blood loss in an ICU patient uh, was 60 mLs per day. Yeah. And that includes the blood they send to the lab and the blood they throw in the trash when they clear the lines mm-hmm. from the saline. Uh, and so 60 mLs a day is just over 1% of your blood mm-hmm. if you're a normal size patient. Right. If you're a 40 kilo patient, it, it could be almost 2% of your blood every day. Uh, so I like to say that the, the hemoglobin uh, always goes down while you're in the hospital. <laughs> it, it hardly ever goes up. Yeah. Okay? Even when you diurese off fluid, it seems to go down. Uh, in the ICU especially. And and it goes down for, for four reasons. Okay. okay? Uh, one is phlebotomy blood loss. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is all bleeding stops, but not exactly when you leave the OR. <laughs> right, so ongoing okay. bleeding, yes. Um, the other is hemodilution mm-hmm. from extra IV fluids. Right. And then fourth, stress, surgical stress, will impair erythropoiesis. Okay. Okay, you and I are sitting yeah. here right now. I think that's something we don't always appreciate, right? So you and I are destroying and creating 1% of our blood cells every day. Mm-hmm. Okay? So uh, if, you, if you destroy them and you don't create them, you're going to be in the hole and your yeah. hemoglobin is <laughs> going to drift down. So you're running a net deficit from EPO impairment as well. So, yeah. so to follow up on your question, we started using smaller phlebotomy tubes. Yeah. Uh, they come in three sizes, adult, pediatric, and neonatal. Mm-hmm. Okay? The neonatal ones, uh, which we often use on Jehovah's Witnesses, they hold 0.5 mLs. Okay? The adult tubes can hold as much as 10 right. mLs, so 20 times more blood. Mm-hmm. Okay? The pediatric tubes, which we've now switched to universally in the ORs and the ICUs, they hold between two and five mLs. You know, I didn't even realize that you mentioned that, that those are pediatric tubes originally. I'm so used to the 2.5 to 3 cc yeah, uh, we, containers. Yeah, we use the medium-sized tubes yeah. uh, for the most part, the pediatric tubes. And the, the lab doesn't like the tiny little plastic ones, the neonatals, mm-hmm. because they don't run through the machines automatically, and they have to run them by hand. I so we, we only use them on special patients like neonates and uh, some Jehovah's Witnesses that are in the ICU. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and I can say, you know, just one of our post-op measures has been, you know, in genosis too, is to have more of a meaningful discussion of every patient who's, who really needs which serial labs and when, not just kind of resorting to default the Q4 hour set of everything. The frequency of right. lab orders uh should should be different when yeah. when blood conservation is a concern and and standing lab orders are a problem yeah uh, I notice here that in Jehovah's Witness patients they don't even order daily labs uh, most often because if you're not going to give them a transfusion why do you need to know 
their hemoglobin. Yeah. <laughs> you should look at their heart rate and their blood pressure and their symptoms. Are they dyspneic? Right. Are, are they, uh, yeah. you know, tachypneic? So other than, you know, some things like the lab workflow is a little more difficult for running neonatal or a smaller set tubing, why do you think we don't take these blood conservation measures on every patient who comes for cardiac surgery? Are there any disadvantages? Oh, I get that or? question a lot of yeah. times. Like, aren't these blood conservation measures good for everyone? And the answer is yes. And, and some of the uh, changes in practice that we've learned from uh, Jehovah's Witness patients has now carried over into the general population. Mm-hmm. And, for example, uh, even preoponemia treatment. Wouldn't you rather have your own red blood cells when you show up for surgery? You yeah. know, maybe take some iron tablets yeah. uh, rather than require uh, $500 worth of transfusion, right? Right. When, when iron tablets cost pennies. Uh, so th- the things we're talking about have now uh, transferred to the general population. And, and like I said, we use the same methods in blood less care as we do in blood management. Only one, we, we avoid transfusion, and the other, we reduce it. Right. And I guess in your experience, you know, what's kind of emerged is a lot of these rapid point-of-care testing to, in a normal patient, to sort of be smarter and direct what transfusions we give to folks. But I think still applicable in the Jehovah's Witnesses who are willing to accept factor concentrates, for instance, in someone who has ongoing bleeding. Do you feel that you know, maybe we're better able to embrace these methods because of our experience caring for these patients? Um, Point of care testing is important for two reasons. You get faster turnaround. Mm -hmm. You can make faster decisions. Right. And uh, you can often do point of care testing with a smaller blood sample. So, for example, thromboelastography. Mm-hmm. we, we have it available. Not all hospitals do. Right. Uh, and we have remote viewing. So within 15 minutes, you can get meaningful results that will tell you about clotting factors and platelet function. Uh, and if these alternatives like uh, cryoprecipitate, uh, which they usually agree to, right. uh, are available and you can treat their fibrinogen level, it, it turns out fibrinogen levels are very important. It's, right. it's really the first clotting factor to become deficient. Right, yeah. When you start transfusing patients that, right. that are losing blood. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about actually sort of universal care for these patients is some form of antifibrinolytic therapy, usually before the initial consumption of, of clotting factors to sort of suppress the, you know, degradation of the fibrinolytic system. Yeah, my understanding right. is that antifibrinolytics are now standard of care for cardiac surgery, and, and I think you guys were using them uh, before the orthopedic surgeons, all the way back to the aprotonin days, Right. <laughs> before it was taken off the market in, I yeah. think, 2008. Yeah. Uh, you guys were early adopters of antifibrinolytics, and in 2017... Uh, in the New England Journal was a huge randomized trial from Australia, uh, 5,000 patients by Paul Miles, mm-hmm. showing that um, you indeed reduce bleeding and transfusion by about 25 or 30 percent with antifibrinolytics, tranexamic acid, uh, but you do not increase uh, thrombotic events in that randomized trial. There was a very small increase in seizures. Right. So this would be with uh, transexamic acid transexamic more acid. so than the lysing analogs, right? Um, so, but the seizures, you know, were related to higher doses, and they actually cut the dose in half during right. that study, <laughs> in the middle of that study, and still found the benefit. Um, let's see. So I guess maybe to, maybe to start wrapping up, you know, not everyone, not every hospital is lucky or fortunate enough to have a bloodless or blood management program the way we do. So for those providers who encounter Jehovah's Witness patients or any population in which how you transfuse may be limited, what are some of the you know key things that you think are really important to address and direct and counsel in those, in those tough discussions? Well, for cardiac surgery, um, I think preop anemia 
management, that can be done by an internist or a hematologist. Mm -hmm. You know, if the patient has time and they're not, you know, urgent, emergent, right. with unstable angina, you have time to, to manage pre-op anemia. And then these um, intra-op methods like ANH or Cell Saver or uh, hemoconcentrators, perfusionists play a, a big role. Right. Uh, the size of their circuits, wrapping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you don't need a bloodless program to do those. And then even smaller phlebotomy tubes, a lot of hospitals are adopting those now. And in fact, one more thing I'll add is the largest randomized trial ever in cardiac surgery came out a year ago uh, by David Mazur uh, showing that, that cardiac surgery patients do just as well at hemoglobin triggers of seven and a half right. as they do at nine. Um, in fact, uh, no difference in outcomes, okay? In fact, the patients over age 75 in that study, which, by the way, was half mm -hmm. of their patients, mm -hmm. did worse right. at the higher hemoglobin trigger. They did worse with a trigger of nine than seven and a half. Right. The elderly patients... Uh, benefited from getting less blood, which is counterintuitive to what we've been taught uh, for all these years. That they need more reserve, for instance, right? Um, what hemoglobin do these? What, what what hemoglobin do Jehovah's Witnesses usually leave the hospital with? I mean, I, I bet it's variable, but are they in seven or eight range that we usually consider acceptable, or are they usually much lower? We, um, with these targets and triggers that mm -hmm. we've talked about, uh, they usually leave the hospital after cardiac surgery between 8 and 10. Wow. <laughs> and, and we've shown, even recently, uh, Brian Cho worked on this with me, uh, that, that it's not until a hemoglobin threshold, leaving the hospital at right. a hemoglobin of 8, yeah. where uh, readmissions uh, are mm -hmm. more common. I see. So we think if you can get them out of the hospital above 8, uh, that that's a threshold uh at least to prevent readmissions. Right. That was actually going to be my next question, you know, not realizing that they're leaving the hospital perhaps with maybe even higher hemoglobins than the rest of the population. How do they fare when we follow up with them? Are they doing worse because they have more of a risk to leave anemic, or are they doing better because they haven't had all of the exposure to the transfusions that other patients do? I don't do? think we know for sure because, mm -hmm. for example, this readmission study was small. It was retrospective. Yeah. Uh, although David Mazur had a six-month follow-up uh, on the, th the threshold study, 5,000 mm -hmm. patients, yeah. and found no difference in six-month mortality or morbidity right. or readmissions uh, between the 7.5 group and the 9 group. Uh, so that's important. And I think one thing that we neglect uh, is sending patients home with iron tablets. Okay, yeah. Okay, when you lose blood, you lose iron. Right. And to make new red cells, you need iron. Yeah. Uh, and we learned that, for example, from Red Cross blood donors, mm -hmm. that they recover faster when you put them on iron. The I same see. thing's got to be true when you lose blood in the hospital. Right. So they go home on iron therapy. They and... should go home on iron therapy, but I don't hear people talking about that. <laughs> when do you usually uh, follow up these guys? Do you come and see them when they follow up for their cardiac surgical appointments, or do they make We make telephone okay. contact. Gotcha. Uh, because we sometimes follow up to make sure they see their post-op visits mm -hmm. to see how they're doing. Right. Well, that's kind of all I have. I just want to say thank you. I mean, I, I think you guys can all appreciate what a wealth of knowledge Dr. Frank is. We're very lucky to have had him here to talk with us today. And um, I guess I'll turn it back to you, Jed. Thanks so much, Steph. Uh, that was fascinating. Thank you both. And uh, Steve, thanks for coming and, and being such a wealth of knowledge, as Steph said. I do have a couple questions I thought of, can't resist, um, as Steph was taking you through that. So just uh, maybe if you can um, give me a few thoughts on some of these things. So um, I'm curious about some of the kind of ethics of it. When you have these discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses, do you ever have a situation where you get the feeling that um, they, the patient themselves may be feeling some pressure from whoever they may be with? And if so, how do you handle that situation when you want to find out if the patient is, is, on, is being influenced at all by a family member or a friend? Uh, do you ask to speak to them alone? How do you handle that situation? That is tricky business. 
because we've seen all variations on that theme. We, we've seen the uh, family members who want them to get blood, and the patient doesn't. We've seen the family members who uh, don't want them to get blood, and the patient does. <laughs> uh, we've even seen uh, groups of six or seven family members. We talk about pressure. Uh, especially when the patient might not even be a Jehovah's Witness, but might be considering becoming a Jehovah's Witness. Interesting. Okay, and and they feel like if they refuse the blood, they'll have a better chance at, at achieving that goal. Mm. It, it gets tricky. Uh, what we're supposed to do is, is to ask the patient when they're alone, uh, with no one around, uh, how they feel about uh, accepting or declining blood even if their life depends on it. And ideally, we would do that with every single patient. It's sometimes tricky to to ask six family members to leave the room because they know exactly why you're asking them to leave the room. Right. But we have done that. And uh, officially, that's the the route we're supposed to take. Okay. So trying to do that uh, can be tricky, obviously, but trying to do it any way you can. We've had patients say, well, I'll take the blood, but only if I really, really need it. Life depends on it. Right. And and sometimes they feel better if you tell them that, that we're not going to give it to you unless you really, really need it. Yeah, interesting. Okay. Can a pregnant Jehovah's Witness refuse blood even if the baby uh, or fetus uh, is at risk? So uh, before birth... Yes, they can refuse blood. Uh, after the baby's born and until they're 18 years of age, uh, the parents cannot legally refuse blood for their minor children. And we tell them, uh, let's say you have a 15-year-old coming for cardiac surgery. Well, we tell the parents that, um, that we'll do everything possible to avoid transfusion Okay, including we'll name all the techniques we just discussed. Uh, however, we're legally obligated to give your child blood mm-hmm. if their life depends on it. And by doing that, by telling them that, they feel comfortable. Yeah. And, and yet we avoid the court orders that you've heard about. Right. Which is confrontational. We try to avoid that. Absolutely. Great. What about consent? Is there a different consent for Jehovah's Witnesses when they're going into a major surgery like a cardiac surgery? So uh, we've had one consent for both acceptance and refusal. Uh, it makes it easier to have one consent where you accept on top and refuse on the bottom. This is for blood. Yeah, sorry. Let me clarify. What I was thinking is if you have a Jehovah's Witness going into surgery, do you have a different consent for the surgery where you're telling them, you know, you may be at higher risk of death from this surgery than someone who would accept blood and you want their kind of um, written consent about that, or no? Do we just use our standard anesthesia we, and we surgical consent? We use the standard consent. consent. Um, we don't have a special one for cardiac surgery. And are there any legal risks for a surgeon or anesthesiologist who uh, would potentially have a Jehovah's Witness die from lack of blood transfusion, and then have a family member, for example, say you should have done it anyway? Or is that are you safe from that? Funny you should ask, because there are about four ongoing lawsuits around the country uh, over this very issue. Uh, what it boils down to in the legal climate is uh, if you have a post-operative bleed, for example, you should notice it and treat it quickly, okay? Like within an hour, not six hours. Uh, because if you're sitting on a bleeding patient and not acting, that would increase your liability. Yep. Uh, and also, if you if you tell them you're going to use the cell saver, for example, as a backup, you better make sure the cell saver's there, and you better make sure it's working, and and uh, it's not that it's working properly. Absolutely. 
So you mentioned, um, and I think this is just a really thing, a great thing to echo here, is that uh, you use, you have help from people in the church, in the Jehovah's Witness Church, who act as coordinators, help people understand their options, and maybe understand even their own literature so that they can make informed choices. And I think that's just really key for anyone out there to keep in mind if you're organizing any similar program is that you're going to have more success if you're if people can talk to someone who they can trust as being a member of their own culture as opposed to an outsider telling them what they should or shouldn't do. So I really liked that. I want to also ask you, do we know, are there certain surgical techniques that you or your program say to, for example, cardiac surgeons, you know, please make sure you do this with this patient because of the fact that they won't accept blood because we know that that surgical technique itself is a little less likely to cause blood loss? Um. In, in cardiac surgery, I would say the, the main goal is meticulous technique, and, and God forbid, don't let the cannula pop out of the vessel. Right. Because you can, you can exsanguinate blood on the floor pretty quickly if that happens. Right. But, but in general, uh, less invasive procedures are better. Like if you can replace an aortic valve with a taver, over a, uh, a an open chest, you have to do that. And if you can place two cardiac stents instead of a cabbage, mm-hmm. then you should go that route. In, in fact, there's one more thing: they do more radial artery catheterizations in in patients who can't be transfused mm-hmm. because they can hold pressure on it and stop the bleeding easily. Whereas in in the groin and the femoral artery. Yeah. You can lose a, a unit or two of blood into the tissues uh, before the bleeding stops. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then do we know, um, and this may be kind of one of those questions of do we know that parachutes are better? I mean, it certainly seems like if you have a Jehovah's <laughs> Witness and you do these techniques, yeah. they're going to be better off. But do we actually have any studies that, that show that using bl- a bloodless technique on a Jehovah's Witness will, will have a better outcome for them? So uh, Colleen Cook has one uh, from about four years ago uh, from the Cleveland Clinic, and we have one from Johns Hopkins uh, showing that patients do as well as patients who accept transfusion uh, if they're managed properly. If they're selected and treated with the methods that we've discussed, that you'll have outcomes that are similar uh, to patients who accept transfusion. And we're assuming that if you didn't do these techniques, they would do worse because they would lose blood. And, and we, we think they need special treatment. Right. Right. And you probably could not randomize people to getting no special treatment and going into surgery as a Jehovah's Witness. Um, all right. And then, Steph, I just had one question for you about what you guys are actually doing. Um, you, got, you two mentioned using antifibrinolytics. In, when you're doing cardiac surgery uh, or anesthesia for it these days, are you using tranexamic acid or are you using Amicar or are you using something else? Yeah, so I think, you know, before the shortage, actually, um, you know, we use Lodos Amacar, but currently we use uh, transexamic acid, which comes, it's a little bit of a different class, but it's still an antifibrinolytic agent. Um, and we use Lodos transexamic acid. So it's a bolus dose, usually around the time of um, your initial heparin bolus prior to initiating bypass and then maintained with a, a Lodose infusion, usually one milligrams per kilogram per hour. Um, and that's pretty consistent, and that usually um, extends through arrival into the ICU. Great. And so that is thought to be safe in terms of seizures, but also gets you the uh, blood-saving effect. Right. It's supposed to be um, a good balance with the you know, reduced risk of, of transfusions and bleeding and re-exploration and without the additional risk of seizures or, in you know, the case of the uh, lysine analogs, um, you know, renal dysfunction, thrombotic complications. Great. Thank you both so much for doing this. This is fantastic, and I think it will be really useful for our listeners. Thank you all. All right. That was great and super fun. Uh, Steph did an amazing job as my first guest host. I love it. If you want to leave a comment on this episode, let us know how you do bloodless medicine or how you do transfusion and cardiac surgery. Check out the website at ACRAC.com. That's A-C-C-R-A-C.com. You can leave comments that everyone can learn from, and you can, of course, see all of our episodes there. 
If you are a fan of the show and you haven't already, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And of course, if you want to support the making of the show, you can go to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, we really appreciate it. If you prefer to control the timing and amount of your donations, you can go to paypal.me slash ACRAC. That's paypal.me slash A-C-C-R-A-C. And you can make a donation of any amount at any time that you want. Thank you so much for considering it. And of course, to those who are already donors or patrons, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. And a big thanks, as always, to Brian Park for the outlines he's done for some of the episodes. All right, that's it for today for the ACRAC Podcast and Doctors Cha and Frank. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.